Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the word that we see in Holy Scripture. We thank you for your word made flesh in Jesus Christ, your son. I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit now to open our ears and minds to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. And you can be seated. I want to look at our Old Testament lesson this morning and preach from Genesis chapter 2 and 3. I invite you to turn there in your bulletin or in your Bible. This is the story, the famous story of the fall of the human race. The story of how death came into the world. Spiritual death, physical death through sin. And so... I don't want to sound too grim this morning, but I I want to look at this story as if we were reading an autopsy report. You know, a spiritual autopsy, because an autopsy determines or can determine the cause of death. Uh, In criminal investigations, sometimes there's a forensic autopsy to see if the person really did die by criminal means. Medical autopsies can show if there was an underlying disease that caused death. And I've even noticed that some people are using the word autopsy to determine what happens when an organization or institution collapses to prevent that from happening again. There's a book on the market called An Autopsy of a Diseased Church, which I haven't read. I want us to look at this story from Genesis 2 and 3, the story of the fall, and ask ourselves the question, what was the underlying condition? What happened here? What brought spiritual and physical death into the world and to all of us? What lessons can we learn? What can save us? And so let's look at this story with those questions in mind. We see that, first of all, it began with a test. Are Adam and Eve going to obey God's command, God's word? The test was obedience to the word of God. Look at verse 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. God said to Adam, I want you to enjoy this garden. I want you to enjoy all the the fruit of this garden, except for this one place, this one tree. You can have everything else except for the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does that mean? What does that name, the, knowledge, the, the, the tree of knowledge, mean? Well, there's different opinions on what it means. Some people say it's about practical knowledge or experiential knowledge. God does not want Adam and Eve to leave their state of innocence and experience practically evil. That's one interpretation. That's one view. Other people say if they eat of this tree, the knowledge of good and evil... They're going to know the future destiny of the human race. They're going to know whether or not people will be good or evil. It's about knowledge of the future. And there's another view, and this is the one that makes the most sense to me. I think this one 
is in line with the overall story. You can decide for yourselves. But, but this is the one that says, the, to eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, by doing this, they're going to be asserting that they have the right, independent from God, to determine good and evil. To eat of the fruit of this tree is an act of rebellion against God and a declaration of moral autonomy and independence. Now, however we explain the name of this tree, it's clear from the story that the tree is a test. And the test is, will they obey God's word or not? And every temptation, you see, confronts us with the same test. Every temptation. The question is, will we obey the word of God or not? Am I going to live life according to my own rules? Am I going to do it my way, as Frank Sinatra said? Am I going to obey God's word or am I going to let the word determine what's right and wrong? So we're all given this test. Will we obey the clear teachings of God's word? Now, after the test came the tempter, Satan, the snake. Actually, it doesn't say that it's Satan. It just says that a serpent appeared who was more crafty than the other beasts of the field. But a Christian tradition tells us that the serpent was Satan or Satan used the serpent. Revelation 12, 9, the Apostle John, writing the book of Revelation, calls Satan that ancient serpent. So there's a connection between Satan and the tempter in the Garden of Eden. And let's look at what Satan does here. I want you to notice that he twists the word of God. So first you have the, tw- the test, which is obedience to the word of God. And then you see Satan beginning to twist the word of God. And this is where, to go back to my autopsy analogy, this is where the spiritual disease starts. It starts with twisting the word of God, contradicting the word of God, questioning the word of God. And that's what eventually leads to death. So you see it in in verse 1 of chapter 3. Excuse me. Yeah, no, it is verse 1. Did God actually say? He says to the woman, he says to Eve, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He's twisting God's word because God didn't say that, did he? In fact, God said you can eat of any tree, any tree of the garden except for the one tree. But Satan says, did God actually say you, you can't eat of any tree of the garden? See, he's making God sound harsh. He's making God's command sound restrictive. And he's inviting Eve into this game now. Let's question the word of God. So the serpent twists God's word and then he invites Eve into this game. And that's what she does. She makes some very subtle but important changes to the word of God, to God's clear command. Look at what she says in verses 2 and 3. And I wonder if you pick up where she's twisted it just slightly. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Now that's right. That's what God said. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Okay, so far, so good. But here's the addition. Neither shall you touch it. God didn't say that. God said, don't eat it. 
Now she's exaggerating. Lest you die. So what she has done is she's made God's command more restrictive than it originally was. One commentator said that by this exaggeration, she set a law for herself. She set a law for herself by this exaggeration. She's made God's command more restrictive and and she made the penalty for sin less certain. Because she says, God said, lest you die. God didn't say that. He said, you will surely die. You will be doomed to death. That's the force of the word, of the words there. So that's certainty, whereas lest you die sounds more like a warning. Now, you might be saying, Ben, you're making too much of this. These little changes are, 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 are not that significant. You're making a mountain out of a molehill. But I just invite you, if you think that, to read Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 very carefully, as if you were reading it, um, as if it were a, a work of, of literary art, a well-crafted narrative, because that's exactly what it is. I mean, it's inspired by the Spirit of God. It's not just literature. It's more than that, but it's not less than that. It's been carefully crafted, and every detail matters. There's, there's, there's great elements of literary artistry throughout the Genesis narrative, including repetition, and then when, in narratives where you get repetition, when you see some differences, that signifies something significant. So, so she has changed something, and it's a small difference, but it demonstrates that she's starting to twist God's command. And now the tempter sees an opening. Now the tempter sees an opportunity to directly attack God's word. And that's what he does. He says, you won't surely die. Direct contradiction. God said, you will surely die. The devil says, no, you won't. So he's making God out to be a liar. He's contradicting God's word. And then he impugns God's motive. He, sound, he makes it sound as if God gave you this command because he doesn't want you to experience fullness. He doesn't want you to know blessing. God's not good. God's holding something back from you. He says in verse 9, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. It's as if he's saying, God's jealous. God's in competition with you. It's a ridiculous thought that the creator's in competition with his creation. But that's how he makes it sound. God doesn't want you to proceed this way because then you'll be like him and you'll know good and evil. Now, friends, that's the essence of sin right there. I, I titled this message, The First and Fundamental Sin. And I think what's fundamental to all of sin is this desire to be like God. The creature wanting to be the creator. To be independent from God. To make up our own rules. To be autonomous. To determine for myself what is right and what is wrong. To make up my own laws rather than submit to God's law. And so I think we can add this to our autopsy report. It starts with a test. It proceeds by this twisting of God's word. The test is obedience to God's word. Satan twists God's word. Eve gets in on, game, in, in on the game and she starts twisting the word of God. And then there's this desire to dethrone God. To become God-like. To determine truth apart from him. So I think at this point, let's just stop and ask ourselves this question. Let's ask ourselves this question, brothers and sisters. What's our standard of truth? Is it the word of God? 
Bruce Waltke wrote this in his commentary in Genesis, and it made a whole lot of sense to me. I wonder if it makes a lot of sense to you. Listen to what Bruce Waltke said in his commentary on Genesis on this passage. He said, unless we know everything, we know relatively. Unless we know comprehensively, we know we can't know absolutely. In other words, if we don't know everything, our knowledge is relative. If we can't comprehend everything, we don't have absolute knowledge. Now, is there anybody here who thinks they have absolute knowledge and can comprehend everything? You see, if we admit who we really are, then we understand that we're dependent. We're dependent upon God. He says, therefore, only God in heaven who transcends time and space has the prerogative to know truly what is good and bad for life. We must depend on God's revelation to know truly what is good and bad for life. And God's truth isn't relative. God's truth isn't subject to popular opinion. God doesn't look at the opinion polls and say, I wonder if they'll go along with this. God's truth isn't up for democratic vote. God's truth is invariable. It doesn't change. Now, somebody gave an example from physics and Einstein's theory of relativity. You want to think about Einstein's theory of relativity this morning? Is that why you came to church? Well, don't ask me to explain it any further than what I'm about to tell you. But here's the analogy. You know, according to Einstein's theory of relativity, the speed of light is absolute. The speed of light is the absolute limit in physics. Nothing is faster than the speed of light. It travels at 186,000 miles per second. And Einstein almost called his theory of relativity a theory of invariance. He called it the theory of relativity not because everything is relative, but things are relative to the absolute, which is the speed of light. That doesn't change. That's constant. We measure everything against that. It's constant. It doesn't change. And you see the analogy. That's the word of God. The word of God is constant. The word of God is absolute. And so we measure everything against his word. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, is the word of God setting the standard for our life and our thinking? Is the word of God setting the standard for our family? Are we teaching the word of God to our children and our grandchildren? Are there places in our life where we're in danger of getting in on that game of twisting the clear teaching of Scripture to fit ourselves, to fit our own desires. You know, oftentimes the problem with us, and I'm including myself here in on this, believe me, the problem with us is that it's not that we don't understand the clear teaching of God's Scripture. It's just that we don't really want to hear it because we don't want to change. We don't want to be convicted. We don't want to do what the Word of God says. It's like when we get on to our children sometimes and they plug their ears and say, I don't want to hear it. There's a story of a lady, an elderly lady, who was taken in by an investment scheme, one of those investment schemes promising wealth and great uh, miraculous returns, and she lost everything. And so she called the Better Business Bureau, and, and when she called them, they said, well, why didn't you call us first of all? Didn't you know that we existed? This was a bogus investment scheme. We could have told you that. And she said, well, I knew all about you, but I didn't want to call you because I didn't want to hear what I knew to be true. It was too good to pass up. It appealed to something within her. And so she shut out the truth and plunged headlong, and then it was too late. She lost everything. The appeal was so strong, she didn't want to hear what she knew to be true. 
Sometimes we suppress the truth of God's word because of the appeal of sin to our flesh. Or we want to look sophisticated. We want to appear wise in the eyes of the world. Well, after Eve's conversation with the tempter, the snake, Satan, now she's set up to fall. Because she's filled with the desire to be wise, to be like God. And uh, it says this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And now listen to how Adam took such a stand for the word of God. I mean, great job, Adam. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Eve had to be talked into it. Adam just took it from his wife and he just fell just like that. And then we read of the consequences. The eyes of both were opened, which Satan said would happen. He was right about that. But their eyes were opened to shame and to guilt. They realized that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You see, that's where sin leads. It leads to shame and guilt and alienation from one another and from God. That's spiritual death. So, They failed the test. They failed the test of obedience to God's word. They twisted God's word. They sought to dethrone God, and it led to this shame and alienation and death. Now, this is our story, too. Because we have failed to obey God's word, haven't we? And sometimes we've twisted God's word. And we've plunged headlong into things we know are clearly against the word of God. And we've experienced the shame. And we've experienced the alienation too. In Adam's fall, we sin all. The old Puritan said. This is our story too. But thanks be to God, he doesn't leave us in our sinful and fallen condition. And he didn't leave Adam and Eve alone. He cares for people made in his image. And so he sent the second Adam, his son. And Jesus passed the test. And we read about that in our gospel reading. He was tempted. He was tempted, the Bible says, in every way that we were without sin, though. He didn't succumb. He didn't fail. He obeyed the will of his father, and he obeyed the will of his father all the way to the cross out of obedience to the will of his father and out of love for us. So brothers and sisters, in our battle against sin and temptation, in our battle to be faithful to the word of God, and I hope that you think of it as a battle. It is a battle until we get to heaven. A battle against sin, a battle against temptation, and a battle for the word of God. And there is a spiritual enemy who wants to undermine us and destroy our souls and our family members, and our church, and he's wreaking havoc on the church in North America because of many of these same things that we've talked about. Failing to obey God's word, to heed God's word, twisting God's word. But in your battle against sin and temptation, let the goodness of what the second Adam has done for you propel you on. Let the love that Christ has shown for you at the cross strengthen you for obedience. 
We can make right choices in the face of temptation, not in our own strength, but through the Spirit of Christ. We have the Spirit of Christ in us if we're united to Christ. And we can stand firm and strong. And when we fall and when we fail, we repent and we claim our forgiveness again, one for us at the cross of Jesus Christ, and we get back into the fight. So friends, you see, the final report for us for a believer in Jesus Christ, is not an autopsy report. The final word about us is not failure and sin and death and alienation from one another and God. No, the final report on us is grace and victory and forgiveness and reconciliation and resurrection through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Lord, we thank you for Sending the second Adam to redeem us from sin and death. Lord, we thank you that you stood the test in our place, that you were perfectly obedient. Lord, we're so grateful that you went to the cross for our sake. And that he who knew no sin became sin for us in order that we might be the righteousness of God. We thank you, Lord Jesus, as Paul wrote, death reigned through one man, but much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. We thank you for that abundant grace and mercy. Lord, I pray that each of us will take a moment today to ask ourselves if we are in any way twisting your word or failing to believe in your goodness or contradicting your word or ignoring your word because your word leads to life and you offer that to us and we're grateful for that as well. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.